And I said, hey, I'm going to get Billie Holiday. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get Teddy Wilson to play with Billie Holiday. I mean, I'm going to get Lester Young to play with Teddy Wilson. I'm going to get Roy Eldridge to play the drums. I'm going to get Joe Jones to play the drums. Man, I was like a kid in a candy shop. You know what I mean? I could just pick whatever I wanted. They were all there. And they all needed the work. In 1954, budding impresario George Ween flung open the doors of the dark and smoky jazz clubs and brought the music out into the fresh air of Newport, Rhode Island. So with the Newport Jazz Festival, Ween established a new venue for jazz and brought stars like Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, and Billie Holiday to new audiences. And over 50 years later, the annual festival is still showcasing the top jazz players of today. I'm David Goodhart, and this is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. In jazz, George Ween is a triple, if not quadruple, threat. Club owner, record label head, pianist, and founder of festivals worldwide. On this edition, we'll hear George Ween's great tales from the festival circuit from this 2006 Jazz at Lincoln Center talk, moderated by Lauren Schoenberg, artistic director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. My tastes in jazz are uh, omnivorous. Artistry is what appeals to me. That's the truth. It's artistry is the important thing. Whether it's the artistry of Ornette Coleman or the artistry of Louis Armstrong, it's the approach that people have to the music. And that was the, the uh, standards I always used in my festivals because I was very fortunate. Because back in 1954, when I had the opportunity to produce the first jazz festival, uh, it wasn't the first jazz festival, it was the first one in America that there was a festival in Europe in 1949 and 1950, but his first annual event. Jazz was a world of unbelievable talent in those days. It was beyond imagination. You know, with Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Errol Garner, uh, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Charlie Parker, Art Tatum, all these people were alive. They were all playing. They were all vital. And when you put together a program, you could utilize all of them. The problem with jazz is that the average jazz fan doesn't like all kinds of music. That's the problem. People like bebop, they don't like to swing. They like swing, they don't like modal music. They just will not open up their ears to different things. And in order for you to love and appreciate the music, you have to do that. Because if you just stick upstairs listening to Billie Holiday records, you'll never enjoy Cassandra Wilson, say, and you can't do that. So what did I do in the first festival? What did I know? I was a kid. The Laurel Odds came to me in my club. I had Storyville in Boston, which was a nice club. I was losing money right and left. I didn't have the money to lose. I was in debt. You know, and, and so I was having a good time, though. You know, I was, I guess, in 1954, I was 28 years old. I was 28 years old. And, and I'd opened up my club when I was 24, 1950. I'd been in the Army. I'd been in college. I'd played the piano, as, as Lawrence said. With uh, I played with Max Kaminsky, Pee Wee Russell, Edmund Hall. I played with a lot of good musicians. I knew I'd never be a great piano player. When you got close to these people, you realized, hey, there was a talent there that you didn't have. But I found out when I was with a band that somehow or other I was leading the band, you know, or I would find the work for them. I, would, I was organizing things. I would create things. This was my talent. I never had any motivation to do a festival. My motivation was just to do things, to do something. I still have that motivation. I'm 80 years old. I'm still thinking of things to do. 
I have a lot of plans that I want to do in the next few years, if I have the next few years. It's very exciting to not stop thinking about things. But when the Laurelards made it possible, they came into me and said, we have a dull summer in, New Orleans, in Newport. I get confused with New Orleans and Newport. I'll get to New Orleans a little later because there are many festivals in my life, you know. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll give you a, an idea of all of them because each one has a different personality and a different structure. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I said, they, they would have, we could have done a series of jazz concerts, could have opened up a club in the summer because I'd had a club up in, in Gloucester where I played some nice jazz up there. But then I realized that we had a classical music festival in Tanglewood. And I said, why can't jazz have a festival? So what is a festival? Well, first of all, it was more than just having a stage and putting musicians on it. Nobody had done this outdoors. We had to worry about sound. We had to worry about selling tickets. We had to worry about publicity and public relations. And everything that you want to do, you better worry about your financing, better worry about a lot of different things. But that's a technical aspect. If you want to be a jazz festival producer, you can get involved with the technical aspect of it. But the primary thing about a festival is the presentation and the music. Once you get your idea about the presentation and the music, you better know what you're doing so that you don't become a mess. Because for some reason or other, everybody thinks they can produce a festival. What is it? You get a stage and you have the musicians on the stage and, and it's wonderful. You announce and now, ladies and gentlemen, Duke Ellington, you know, hey, this is the greatest thing. This is love. This is wonderful. What a life, you know. What a life. I said, you know, there's a lot of academia had not become very involved with jazz yet. You know, now every school has courses in jazz. Every college has courses in jazz. When we started Newport in 1954, there were no courses in jazz at college. Nobody majored in jazz. Can you imagine getting a degree in jazz? I said, let's get a committee. Let's get a board of advisors. And we brought in some wonderful names. And I said, let's have some symposiums. Let's discuss this great American music. Let's put it on a level of the classical music. Let's put it on a level of the arts that it deserves. And that was a vital part of the first mm -hmm. festival, the symposiums and the, not clinics, they were just people from different walks of life, different sciences, different sociological eras that related to jazz, never mind the jazz critics, and never mind some musicians that could speak. And then what was the music? Hey, we had all these different movements in jazz was tremendous dichotomy back in 1954 because the beboppers didn't accept swing the swing didn't accept bebop and there were different magazines and different writers that aligned themselves with different forms of music and who did you like george simon writing about the big bands or barry ulanoff writing about lenny tristano or, or leonard feather writing about bebop he was a turncoat because he had originally liked swing and then he switched to bebop he's still like i mean this was a, a bad time you know really where there was tremendous animosities there were fights so I put together a festival that had Eddie Condon and a Chicago group with Pee Wee Russell and Bobby Hackett on the same program with Lenny Tristano and Lee <coughs> Conitz, you know. So it never happened before. And that was just part of the festival. I couldn't afford the big band, so I, I needed names. I knew that I needed names. I needed something that would attract attention. So I got Stan Kenton to come and be the MC. I don't know where I thought of these things, but then there was my own memories of the music that I loved, this was part of my being. 
And I said, hey, I'm gonna get Billie Holiday. And you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get Teddy Wilson to play with Billie Holiday. I mean, I'm gonna get Lester Young to play with Teddy Wilson. I'm gonna get Roy Eldridge to play the drum. I'm gonna get Joe Jones to play the drums. Man, I was like a kid in a candy shop. You know what I mean? I could just pick whatever I wanted. They were all there. And they all needed the work. So I was creating something while I was going along. And I did not, I wasn't aware that we were making history. I wasn't the least bit aware that we were making history. Next thing I know, I had Billie Holiday on the stage with Teddy Wilson and what happened with Roy Eldridge and Joe Jones and, and uh, Prez wasn't going on the stage, you know. Prez hadn't spoken to the lady in a long, long time. And uh, it was next to Prez off the stage. We had a very small stage. It wasn't much bigger than this. You know, this, we're doing this whole festival on a stage. It was, it was a little bigger than this, but not much bigger than this. I said, Prez, are you going on? He says, I guess I'll have to go up and help the lady out. And he went up and played with Billy Holiday. Well, man, I was, I was gone, you know, I, I just, I mean, the fact that I had brought these people together, who the hell was I? I was just a kid, you know, I was from Boston. I wasn't even part of the New York jazz establishment, which haunted me for quite a few years. And so the next thing I knew, Jerry Mulligan was running up on a stage with his saxophone to play with these people. I was furious, as Jerry didn't belong there, man. I was mad as hell, I really was mad that Jerry Mulligan picked up his horn. He loved that music. And you know, when Jerry Mulligan passed away, I spoke at his funeral, and I said, Jerry, I was mad at you for when I go up on that stage with, with Prez and everybody, but you know something? You belong there. I said, and you belong there now, and you're in the, all in the Valhalla of jazz. And that's where you belong. And thank you for going up there, Jerry. Because when you're young, you don't know. You have your idea of what the music, you don't know anything, man. You really don't. The critics were killing Dizzy Gillespie because he was clowning. This was the first festival. I mean, Dizzy, who was an entertainer like Charlie Chaplin that had the same moves, that had the same kind of, of, of humor. He could make face, he could he just, I told Dizzy Gillespie, please don't clown. Out of my goddamn mind, you know what I mean? I'm telling Dizzy Gillespie not to clown? Well, he would be so, and he said, okay. And he went out there like this. Every so often he'd turn to me, and when I was in the wings, he'd go. Well, you know, I survived. Dizzy became a friend of mine. It took me a few years to get to be a friend, but he became my friend. This was the first year of the festival, and each year we just grew. Then we added afternoon concerts, and we had to do things. We had to, how do we bring in the younger people? How do we bring in the new people? How do we bring in the people that the general public doesn't want to hear? How do we bring in people? We know that Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Duke and Basie and everything, they had publics. We knew Dave Brubeck had a hit record of Take Five. What do we do with the Thelonious Monks that nobody wanted to hear, you know? Nobody wanted to hear Thelonious Monk. I mean, hey, we put them on the afternoons. The afternoon programs were the best programs we had at Newport. <laughs> but by doing that, we opened up the whole structure of the music. The single lesson that I learned along the way, and which a lot of people, a lot of critics don't like it, a festival without people and out an audience is not a festival. And that's the first lesson to learn. You better have an audience. And if you put together the wrong show, you'll have nobody there. And I put together a lot of programs that 
where the artist couldn't give away his tickets to his friends to come and hear him. I did that up in Canada, up in Toronto once. And it was a great festival, but the Canadian Union told me I had to use so many Canadian musicians. There were some very good musicians, and had nothing to do with that, but the Canadian people didn't want to see the uh, Canadian musicians. So I said, what am I going to do? How can I get away with this? I don't want to insult these musicians. I don't want to put them in the program because they'll mess up the program. They don't belong there, you know. So I did an afternoon with six of the best Canadian groups. And if I called out the names, they'd be very good. They're good names. They were. I gave each musician, I think, 10 tickets or 20 tickets. There weren't 100 people in the audience, you know what I mean? You know, nobody came to see their own groups. That, that's, that's why you do not have the freedom to put anybody you like or want to on a festival. There has to be something out there directing you in what is the right thing to do. It's a subtle thing, it's, it's, it's an awareness. The musicians get on the stage, nobody's directing them, nobody's telling them what to do. They play an hour and 20 minutes, they play an hour and a half, the people are getting tired, when's the next group getting on? You know, I said, Duke, you have to close the show. He said, I'm not closing the show. I'm not playing exit music for anybody, you know. And so I then got tough. I said, man, you got to play a 45-minute set. Man, I can't play in 45 minutes. you got to play 45 minutes. you got to play an hour. I says, you've got other people on this program. You have to control your show is what I'm trying to say. You are the director. You do have to be the boss because the musicians will not control the show. They're thinking only of their set. And their moment is in the sun. They're out there. They have that microphone. They have people. They don't want to go anywhere else. This is heaven for them. And that's understandable. That's what they've worked all their lives for. They're fantastic. They're here now. And you're telling them you got 45 minutes. Man, they hate you. They really hate you, you know. But you know something? Over the years, we, we lengthened, we did it now a set, you know, in 55. They've learned how to present themselves in that time, the way they, they've all developed what you call a festival set. Mm -hmm. And they go out there and they know just what to do and how to do it and how to reach the audience and how to make it happen. I'll tell you, I won that fight. I, didn't, I don't win all the fights I'm in, believe me, I lose most of them, but I won that one. NEA jazz master, producer, and pianist, George Ween. You can find all of our jazz stories at jalc.org and on iTunes. For Jazz Stories, I'm David Goodhart. This episode of Jazz Stories was produced at Murray Street by myself with Alexa Lim, David Gorin, and Stephen Rath. Support comes from Jazz at Lincoln Center, so consider becoming a member. You can find complete information at jalc.org. <laughs>